Our scripture today comes from the book of Matthew, verse, uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. It's a familiar story, but it's one that I think is appropriate for us all today. Let us read together. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon And about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us, who have have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. And this is the word of the Lord, and it is for us yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Four old men went into the pro shop one day after playing 18 holes of golf. The pro asked, did you guys have a good game today? The first old guy said, yes, I had three riders today. The second old man said, I had the most riders ever. I had five. The third old guy said, I had seven riders, same as last time. The last old man said, I beat my own record. I had 12 riders today. After they went into the locker room, another golfer who had heard the old guys talking about their game went to the pro and asked, listen, I've been playing golf a long time. I thought I knew all the terminology of the game, but what is a rider? The pro said, a rider is when you hit the ball far enough to actually get in your cart and ride to it. The sermon today isn't about golf, but that does give me an introduction into a point I wish to make using golf as an illustration. About 20 years ago, I played in a golf tournament in Wilmington to raise money for United Cerebral Palsy. 
I was excited to play because I was playing with my dad and my brother and a friend of mine. And this was the first tournament that I'd ever played with my family, so it was exciting for me. Now, if you are not a golfer, you need to know that tournament organizers try to make the teams competitive by having players of somewhat equal ability on each team. That way, one team isn't a surefire ringer. Normally, teams have an A player who is their best player. Next is the B player who's the next best player and and so on. For some reason, on this day, I was designated to be the team's A player. By default, more than anything else. But being the A player in any group adds a level of pressure that's felt by those of us who've ever had to serve as an A player who have no business being in that role. What I liked about it is, in the tournament format, it's, it's pretty close to fair. Even if you don't score the lowest round, they still have other side games that are fun to play. Uh, for example, there's a, they'll run a chalk line right down the middle of the fairway, and whoever lands their ball closest to that chalk line off the tee, they'll win a prize. Or whoever hits the ball the longest off the tee, they'll, hit a, they'll win a prize. So in this tournament, they had a closest to the pin game. And that is on a par three, a short hole. Try to land the ball as close as you can to the pin. Well, these tournaments bring in some really good golfers. And as we're watching, you can see these guys that set up, they hit an iron, it, the ball soars up in the air, has a slight draw. You can almost watch it dialing into the flag. And you just stand there in awe at how beautiful those shots were. And there were lots of them that were hit that day. But I'm sure you've all heard the expression, I'd rather be lucky than good. Well, here's my story. When it was my turn to tee, suffice it to say that I did not hit one of those beautiful high arcing shots. In fact, the highest point my ball reached was about eight inches off the ground. The ball proceeded to introduce itself to every pine cone, every exposed root, Everything you can think of between my ball, the tee box, and the green, it seemed to meet. So as the ball proceeded to move towards the green, you could see it bouncing to and fro like it was frolicking at recess. And however, when the last pine cone that it shook hands with, it encouraged my ball, and in fact, insisted that my ball slightly veer to the right. And don't you know that my battered and bruised and confused golf ball rolled and rolled and rolled and fell to the bottom of the cup? A hole in one. (laughs) So who do you think won the prize that day for closest to the pin? Was it one of those good golfers who hit those great shots? Nope. All it said was the ball that was closest to the pin And that, that was mine. And I can tell you that every person who played in that golf tournament that day could attest that life is not fair. We all know that to be true, don't we? There's an old agricultural saying that goes, the dumber the farmer, the bigger the taters. (laughs) Of all the many wonderful things life may be, we know that it's not always fair. Our text today tells the story of a landowner who went out very early, probably about six in the morning, 
to hire some men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them the usual day's wage, which was a denarius, and he sent them into his vineyard to work. At about nine o'clock, he went back into town, hired some more workers, making the same agreement. He went back again at lunchtime and hired more workers and then repeated the process at three that afternoon. Finally, late in the day, probably around five o'clock, which would have been an hour before quitting time, he hired more workers. Sure enough, the whistle blew at six o'clock, indicating that the work day was over. And the vineyard owner called his manager and said, pay everyone what they're owed, but start with those that were hired last and work your way back to those that were hired first thing this morning. When the workers that were hired last got their pay, well, you can be sure they had happy feet. They had been paid a full day's wage for working an hour. And when that good news spread among the workers, those who had worked all day, they were already planning for that new flat screen TV they were going to buy with their new riches that were sure to come their way. Because if you got a denarius for an hour's worth of work, well then they were about to be on easy street. I'm sure that's what they were thinking. But when the early workers opened their pay envelope inside, they found a denarius. Wait, wait a minute, wait, wait. There's got to be some mistake, they grumbled among themselves. As Matthew says, there was some serious grumbling there in the scuppernog vines. Think you can guess what they were saying? I think I can. Hey, that's not fair. We worked out here in the heat and the gnats and the dust all day long. And we didn't get any more than those one-hour working nimrods got. And that's not fair. And Matthew finishes his story this way. But Jesus replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I'm generous? The story closes with Jesus cryptically saying, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Even though Matthew tells us that Jesus told this story, we still find it patently offensive. We believe in fairness. We're Americans, for heaven's sake. And if it's only fair that people who work longer hours, they should be paid more than those ne'er-do-wells who can only work one hour. We understand their complaints. And in our own minds, there's some justification for some grumbling. I mean, it really isn't fair. Well, here's a newsflash for you. God isn't fair. You can mark that down. God is not fair. 
if fairness is the primary attribute you are looking for in God, then don't go to Jesus for introduction. In fact, if what we expect from God is that He is always fair, we wouldn't need Jesus at all. You see, the Old Testament faith, that is all about fairness. The Jews would have used another word, justice. For the Hebrews, God, above all things, must be just. He must be fair. So what does that mean in practical terms? Well, it means that you can always determine who is doing right and who is doing wrong. Because if you're righteous, you will be rewarded. And if you are unrighteous, you will be punished. What could be fairer than that? There's only one problem. It doesn't work that way in the real world. Many good people suffer. Many scoundrels prosper. The Old Testament man or woman expected to see God's justice prevail. The reward for righteousness was prosperity, a large family with lots of sons and good health, a long life. But then, the most godly man in town gets struck with cancer. And behind closed doors, the people whispered with pursed lips, well, obviously he has a sin that nobody knows about. There must be some just explanation. Meanwhile, Hugh Hefner, who lived to be 170 years old, lived in style in his Playboy mansion, celebrated by the media, and enjoyed what to many would be the good life. How is that possible with a God who is always fair? Even as a nation, Israel believed it was rewarded when it was virtuous and punished when it was not. We can read in verses like Jeremiah 46, 28, Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, for I am with you, declares the Lord, though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only with justice. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. Israel and God had a quid pro quo arrangement, and you always knew where you stood. Is that a sufficient explanation for Israel's travails? What about the Holocaust? Six million Jews, many of them as good as any people on earth, murdered at the hands of a madman and his deluded followers. So where is the justice in that? No wonder Jews have struggled with their faith. But wait, one could say, you are dealing with life this side of the grave. Humanity survives the grave, right? Then the righteous can go to heaven and the wicked can go to hell for their comeuppance and all will be right with the world. And for many, this is enough. 
ultimately, God is fair. Hitler is in hell. Mother Teresa is in heaven. And everything works out as it should. And with a faith that is based on fairness, you're left with really only one question. Where is that dividing line? I mean, what are the sins that can cause someone to go to hell? Murder? Theft? Lust? A few years ago, a woman was tried for killing a man who had raped her daughter. Would she qualify? How much do you have to steal to be headed to Satan's little corner? The kid who breaks into your house and steals a watch and a TV to support a drug habit, is he a candidate for hell? But what if he happens to be your kid? Then what? What about the company president who steals millions, but he's a stalwart church member? Does he get a pass just because he's a believer? Well, that certainly is not fair. Jesus said that a man who looked at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. Is heaven only for women and a few virtuous men? One problem with a faith based on fairness is that it is very difficult to apply. And two, wouldn't the tendency be that if you were among the spiritual elite, that you would look down on those who didn't measure up? This is what happened to the Pharisees. And it has often happened among those that we might dub as super-Christians. A minister was characterizing a woman in his congregation. He described her as a scriptural machine gun. She could biblically wipe out people who disagreed with her by quoting scripture and condemning them. She could mow them down with her tongue, but she had no compassion. She had no empathy. She could only criticize and ostracize those who did not measure up to her standards. Because we find them particularly odious, some of us wouldn't mind if the ultra-self-righteous were ushered at least to the vestibule of hell. But would that be fair? After all, they are simply trying to apply as best they can the rule of law to their lives. So do you see the problem? So Jesus tells this story about people who have worked all day and come to be paid. And they're paid the same as those who have only worked for one hour. And as a result, those who have worked all day complain, it's not fair. It's not just. And Jesus says to them, in effect, God is not just. God is generous. And that, that is what distinguishes the Christian faith 
from all others. How often does a loving parent hear her children complain, that's not fair, when they're trying to formulate an argument to a particular situation? And sometimes, from a strictly objective standpoint, what you're doing is not fair. But as a conscientious parent, although you always want to be fair, fairness is not your ultimate objective. Raising healthy, responsible children, that is your objective. And so it is with God. God is a righteous God. But justice, that's not God's primary concern. God is not interested in balancing out our virtues and our vices and meeting out punishment accordingly. God is interested in fashioning souls who can live with Him for all eternity. That is what the cross is all about. The old system of offering sacrifices for sins, even sins we may not be aware of, to an angry and vengeful God is done away with forever. In just a few short weeks, Christ will bear all our sins at Calvary. This is why His passion and His death have to be so horrific. He who knew no sin will bear the sins of every person who has ever lived and who will ever live. My sin, your sin, on the cross of Golgotha. That's not fair. We ought to pay our own way. But that's just what happened. Jesus paid it all. And you know, it's not fair for another reason. It's unequal. Murderers and thieves and child molesters, they can receive the same absolution as Sunday school teachers and martyrs. But there it is. It is all done. The slate is wiped clean. Never again will anyone ever have to avoid God because of his or her unworthiness. And never again will anyone deserve to feel superior to anyone else. We may not be equals in the boardroom or on the athletic field, but at the foot of the cross, we are all sinners saved by grace. When a person works an eight-hour day and receives a fair day's pay for his time, that is a wage. When a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for his performance, that is a prize. When a person receives appropriate recognition for his long service or high achievements, that is an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage, 
can win no prize and deserves no award, yet receives such a gift anyway? That is a good picture of God's unmerited favor. This is what we mean when we talk about the grace of God. God is not just. God is generous. Come to Him now. You are perfect in God's eyes, just as you are because of what God has done for you. Come to Christ. His arms are open for you this day. Let us pray. Lord, today we come to you fully aware of your graciousness and your generosity, but struggling to believe that you offer it for each of us. Recognizing the many ways that we fall short of what you desire of us. We are humbled by the fact that you love us still. In these next few moments, we pray that we would feel your spirit moving among us and in us. May we silence our minds to hear your voice calling to us, your undeserving children. May we hear your words of love calling us closer to you. May we feel your grace and have it strengthen us for the days ahead. We pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.